When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household, or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or brought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for, as for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarah. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants. <coughs> And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers and will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ismael and all those born in his household, or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every man in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank Graham for this image to start us off. I used to get a bit annoyed at churches when they would sort of do a series on something and skip passages. And now I've got this one, so. <laughs> you can see one. Yeah, but I don't know if I skipped one. <laughs> Never mind. There's a reason I put you on that day, Mike. <laughs> Well, 
God who initiates that. So it starts with, first of all, God saying, I will do this. And it helps to break this chapter down to four parts. So that was the first section, is God sort of confirming that same covenant. He's renaming Abraham and confirming those details with him that he will bless him. And then in section two, between verses nine and 14, that's, that's the weird bit. God's saying to Abraham, you must keep my covenant, you and all your descendants for generations to come. Every male must be circumcised. And we'll, we'll look into this a bit more later. But this is God setting out their side of the deal. God is saying, I will do this. I will bless you. I'll make you a great nation. I will give you children. You are to do this. And then section three. God clarifies that the details of that covenant, that the promised offspring would come through Sarah, not through Hagar. The promise of God has not been fulfilled yet. Abraham and Sarah are thinking, God's promises come through, come true, we've got Ishmael now. But God's saying, no, that's, that wasn't the plan and it's still to come. God's making sure that we're clear on all the details of his promise. Your wife Sarah will bear a son and you will name him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. He's making it really clear that it is God who is going to fulfill his promise, not them, not, not their own works. And then the last part in section 4 is Abraham and his buddies doing what they were commanded to do. And it's a scary thought um, if you think about the quality of tools in 2000 BC. They were not, they were not great. Yeah, sharp and flint is what it was. No. That's true. So the structure of it, we've got God confirming the covenant promises he's made previously, God telling them their side of the deal to be circumcised, and then clarification that that promise and the details of that is going to be through Sarah. And then number four, Abraham and the others doing what they were told. So it's, it's a pretty tidy structure of that chapter. God's covenant promise was to bless Abraham and his descendants, promising that Abraham would be the father of many nations, his descendants would inherit this land and that they would be God's special people. So can you imagine if a deal that good is on offer, what would you expect the other parties part in that covenant to be? You'd expect it to be pretty high, right? I'm going to do all these amazing things for you. Your side of the deal is you've got to bring me buckets of gold, sacrifice your firstborn, you know, some, something crazy. It's got to cost you a lot because God is giving them so much. It's not a fair deal for God to just pile that on. But what God asks them is strange, um, and I'm sure Abraham and the others are thinking it was strange too. God asks them to carry this sign. He says, You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So God asks them to carry the sign to signify their covenant relationship, to carry a permanent reminder of this one sided, grace filled covenant. You know, like on, on the one hand, guys always sort of wince at this, and, you know, like joke that it's a tough ask. Like God doesn't actually get anything out of this. Again, you'd expect it would be throw gold, worship me every five seconds, something, something like that. God's not getting anything out, out of this. He's not asking him to sacrifice anything. The request isn't even about, you know, grab a knife and do this scary thing to prove that you're worth making a covenant. But the point is, bear this mark, this symbol, to remind you you personally, of your covenant with God. 
God's not really asking them to sacrifice anything. He's asking them to make a perfect, a permanent reminder about the covenant, a permanent reminder of God's grace, to remember what God has done for them and the promises to follow. And that relationship that God's wanting them to remember is one of blessing. God is saying, you and your offspring will be my chosen people. I will have a unique relationship with them. They will be different to all the other nations. And through them, I will bless the whole world. So for a symbol for a covenant like that, you would think that the sign might be something like, you know, everyone has to wear a crown or get a tattoo saying, we're the best people, you know, God's favourite, something like that. That would be a, an accurate sign of that covenant as, as God's chosen people. If you were wanting to show off to the world, you know, we are God's chosen. And that's not the sign that God chose to give the people. He chose to give them this very personal and private sign. I'm thinking back to the last covenant sign, Bishop Jay, when he was preaching about the flood. He mentioned that the rainbow was a sign of a previous covenant, that God, God was promising that he would not flood the earth again. But that sign was for God. It was a reminder to him about what he promised. And, and not that God would forget, but the picture that's painted here is that in the future there will likely be times when God feels tempted to flood the earth again. So the sign is set up in advance as a reminder to God, a reminder about the covenant of grace that he had previously made. Or another example of some signs that we're a bit more familiar with. When we come together for communion and we share in the bread and wine, we know that in that situation, the bread is representing and the wine and blood. And by partaking in this, we are symbolically partaking in the death of Jesus. And when we gather in this situation, the symbolism of ritual paints a spiritual picture beyond the physical activity. At any other time, if we're drinking wine and eating bread, it's just a meal that the symbolism isn't there. But when it's used in that right context, those physical things bring on a deep meaning. But it's still just bread and wine. That's the symbolism I just want to go over these three things about the purpose of the sign, the promise of the sign, and the danger of the sign. Starting first off with the purpose of the sign. The purpose of that sign was to remind them of the covenant that God had made with them. <coughs> so yeah, if you remember that message from Sarah a couple of weeks ago about passing through the, the bodies of the animals, the key point there was that God took that covenant risk and that it was it was fully one-sided and made out of grace that Abraham had done nothing to deserve it. He was the only one to pass through the animals that were cut up and God made this unconditional promise to Abraham before he did anything to deserve it. And even that was that was even after Abraham had doubted God, ran away to Egypt, sold his wife, failed to trust God to provide a child, so hurried things along sleeping with his wife's slave. So Abraham did all these things that more than disqualify him from receiving anything from God. But in God's grace, despite this, God stands by his promises. So the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant, it was designed to be a constant reminder of the grace of God, that God is fulfilling his promise despite their sinfulness. And it's no accident that it's you know, directly linked to a reproductive organ. That's a reminder that this is a promise not just to them, but to their offspring too. 
Aravas Vikatavai to die. And this, this picture gets expanded throughout the Bible as time goes on. In Jeremiah chapter 4, we read of him saying, to, He says to the people of Israel, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts, the people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he's taking it from a physical act to a spiritual act of, of taking it the next level further of what's really needed. Or in Deuteronomy 10, this is Moses again clarifying a covenant with them about the land and inheritance and promises. And he says to them, The Lord your God belongs to you. To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. So he's saying, you know, everything belongs to God. He set his affection on your ancestors. He doesn't need anything. He chose to bless them. And that sign of circumcision was intended to be a reminder of God's grace in the past and in the future. But it also pointed them to something else. It was a sign of something more to come, as we start seeing in the prophets. A picture of an important truth that part of them needed to be cut away. The Old Testament ritual of circumcision pointed to a greater thing that Jesus was going to fulfill. The sign was painting a picture of their spiritual condition what was needed. And in Colossians chapter 2, we read that, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he's saying here that in Jesus there was a circumcision without hands, meaning not physical, but spiritual. In the New Testament, the sign of circumcision is replaced with a different sign, the sign of baptism. And it cautions, so it's building this imagery of circumcision, that idea that part of you had to be cut away and die. And now with baptism, that imagery is used of going down in the water, down into the grave, being buried with Christ. And then as you're raised out of the water, you're raised with him, raised in new creation. So it's painting a picture of part of you being left behind, part of you being dead in the grave and raised without that. That symbolism of dying and being raised it's often repeated. <coughs> Just looking if we compare in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So the Old Covenant, that ritual or the sign of that was circumcision. And in the New Covenant, that's replaced with baptism. And the purpose of circumcision, that was to be a reminder of the covenant. The covenant, a reminder that God has chosen to bless them, give them the same, make them into a great nation. The purpose of baptism is also a reminder of the covenant. It's a reminder that, of what God has done for them. That he has died, left your sin in the grave. In the old covenant, the, the sign of circumcision was to remind you that God is gracious, that you are undeserving. You were chosen not because you were great, but because God loved you and loved your ancestors. 
And in the new covenant, the reminder there is that God is gracious, that you are forgiven, and that your sin is left in the grave. We've got that symbolism and circumcision of being born in sin, and that part of you needs to be cut away and die. And then that later builds to that picture of you know, circumcise your hearts, that you're needing a new heart. <coughs> and in the new covenant, that symbolism is about partaking in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that our sinful nature is left in the grave. You start to see where they sort of overlap and how one's building on the, the language with the other. The key things across both of those is that they're both covenants of God's grace and that people are chosen not because they are great but because God loves them. And that recognising that need to die or part of you needing to die involves you know, accepting forgiveness and accepting that you're not that great. You, you can't boast in this. Jesus has done spiritually what the ritual of circumcision pointed to physically. Circumcision was just a shadow of what was to follow. Circumcision pointed forward to what God would do for his people, looking forward to their looking forward to the time when their sinful flesh, meaning their heart, would be cut away. And baptism is a sign that points back to what God has done. Both of these rituals don't actually do anything. In the physical acts themselves. They're, symbol, they're designed to be symbols of what God has done. You can't boast in either of these things. The idea is that someone who chooses to carry out these rituals is admitting that God has shown them grace. Baptism is the mark that sets Christians apart. It's a personal reminder for what God has done. You can't boast in being superior as a Christian because by being baptised you're saying, Part of me needed to die, it was sinful. I've been raised and I've been forgiven. That doesn't mean you're amazing. That means God is amazing. That's why we invite our friends and our families that it's a visual sign, it's a symbol that you're trusting in what Jesus has done for you. And then lastly, looking at the danger of a sign. Between the time of Abraham up to Jesus, Circumcision became to some more than a sign, it basically became salvation itself. In Acts chapter 11, we read of Peter being criticised. It says that those who were of the circumcision contended with Peter. You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Yeah, so that's quite a scandal that happened going on right there. It's shocking stuff according to them. First of all, boasting in their own actions and it's an action that doesn't mean anything. The, the action itself was designed to point to something that meant something. But they said it with conviction and that they, they saw themselves as superior and looked up down on those who didn't follow the same ritual. They're boasting in the ritual, not in what it stands for. And there was this superiority, superiority complex that developed and to some extent it's understandable that God's saying, you're my chosen people, I will bless you. You can understand how that can develop into we're better than you. Even though the origins of God choosing to make a great nation was completely graceful and they didn't do anything to deserve it. They forgot that the whole point of the mark of circumcision and, and the covenant that God made with them also 
but that it was God who made all those promises, God who initiated it, and they actually contribute nothing to that covenant relationship. It, it sound, God is saying that you must do this and you'll be cut off if you don't follow circumcision. That's what he was saying. It, it's, it is harsh and it is expected, but God gets nothing out of that deal. He's saying it's important because it's a sign it's a sign of the covenant. All I want to do is carry this reminder to remind yourselves. The danger of the sign is when it becomes more important than the thing it signifies. They had allowed the ritual to replace the reality, to stop looking in faith at what it represented. They started taking comfort merely in the fact that they had checked the box. They were taking comfort in the sign, not the fact, not that it pointed to the fact that God had graciously blessed them when they didn't deserve it. And as Christians, there's a risk that we do the same today taking comfort in being baptised or going to church with your family or being confirmed as a child. None of those things makes you a Christian. Faith in Jesus is what makes you a Christian. All those things are important, but they need to be signs of the faith. They need to be outward symbols of an inward reality. All those things point to the truth that Jesus has died for you and you're accepting your forgiveness. The sign is designed to testify to the covenant. But you can go through the motions of rituals and signs and completely miss the point of them. You know, an example of this would be, you know, I've got my wedding ring on. If I walked into the room boasting, I'm such an amazing husband, I've got my proof, here's my wedding ring. But then if I was, you know, horrible to Becca, I was sleeping around telling her I just wanted to live with her own life and let me do my own thing. You can see that I'm pointing to the sign as proof by completely missing the point of what marriage was meant to be. It says that I wanted the sign of being married, but not actually wanting the real thing. And that's the same kind of idea. I'm thinking of this symbol as the end goal, completely disregarding the fact that a wedding ring is meant to say, I'm devoted to this one woman forever, and sickness and health, all that stuff. The ring is meant to be a symbol for the actual thing, for the deeper relationship. Or the reverse of that, you know, if you're happily married and you lose your wedding ring, you don't all of a sudden, ah, you know, oh, sorry, my marriage is over. <laughs> what can I do? You know, it's, it's just a ring, but it's a symbol for something. It's the thing that it's representing that actually means something, not the symbol itself. So yeah, there's a danger when signs or rituals become more important than the thing it's meant to point to. And I love in Romans how it, just sort of clears all this up. This was an argument in the early church about how important circumcision was and whether it was meant to continue and what was the big deal. In Romans chapter 4, we read, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. For Abraham, faith came before circumcision. The ritual was a sign that confirmed and testified to the faith that he already had. He had the faith before the ritual. And the, the, 
quick short stack is meaningless without the faith. And Peter makes this as clear as possible in Galatians. He's saying, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The point of the sign of the old covenant was to be a reminder of God's grace. That covenant has been updated and that sign has been updated. But the similarities are still there of God's grace. And I think that's quite a good summary there. And we have unpacking this part of the story that there was a time when Abraham and the people of Israel were commanded to be circumcised. And now there's instructions for believers to be baptized. But both of those things physically in themselves are empty. They are important rituals, but in themselves they are empty. It's when they are done in response to faith that they are powerful pictures of God's grace. I just wanted to wrap up with a couple of sort of questions and items for reflection. Are you trusting in the signs or rituals or trusting in God? Are you boasting in your works or in what God has done? And then lastly, if you haven't been baptised, to consider it. We did have plans for a baptism service 